Well, church family, it's a joy to start the letter of 2 Peter with you today as we have just finished up 1 Peter. And uh, I trust that this word, like all letters and books of the Bible, will minister to us in profound ways. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's the great preacher of the 20th century, was giving a closing sermon at the minister's conference in England in 1971, and he was describing for these pastors the business of the church, and he was using 2 Peter to describe the business of the church, and this is what he said to those preachers. The greatest need in the church and the greatest need of ourselves is to be reminded of what we already know. Is it not tragic that we need to be reminded of the central thing? We are experts on the details, but we have forgotten the center. Beloved, there is no new gospel that we run to. There is no new doctrine. We go back to the old doctrine that was delivered once for all to the saints, and we contend that faith. And that really is the heart of this letter that we're about to delve into. If you look with me down in verse 12 of chapter 1, this is the intent of Peter. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, remind you of the gospel and of Christ himself. And so we are called as the church to remind each other of these things, to rehearse them. Though we know them, though we're established in the truth, we do not veer from it. And the reason we don't is because there is false doctrine that so easily comes into the church or affects the church from the outside. But if we're tethered to the truth, we will be able to discern what is true and from the Lord, from that which is from men. And that's really framing for us the context of this letter. We're going to see in chapter 2 the nature of these false teachers that were affecting the church or trying to creep into the church. And Peter reminds them of the return of Christ in chapter 3 primarily because Part of the doctrine that these false teachers were picking at was the return of Christ, saying that Christ has already come, and since Christ has already come, we can live any way that we want to. And so he starts this beautiful letter by rooting the church in the very thing we need every single day, and that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter references the, the importance of the knowledge of God. And it's going to be uh, found throughout this letter. In fact, we're going to see it in verses 2 and 3 today. But it's also the knowledge of God is the very way he closes the letter in verse 18 of chapter 3. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we call that uh, in theology an inclusio. The knowledge of God is central to what he's teaching the church. He starts with it and he ends with it and he unpacks what that is and why it's important throughout the entire letter. And so our aim, beloved, is to know God. That's why we have entitled uh, this sermon series just that. And specifically, as we're gonna see today, we are called to know Christ and we're gonna unpack what that means. 
It's kind of a main idea for uh, this little sermon text. We're going to be just in the first four verses today. This is how the text is driving the main idea. Christ has provided everything for righteousness and for growing in godliness as we await his return. Christ provides us everything. And we're going to see what that means here as we look into the text. Now, the first four verses today are connected to the next verses that we're going to look at next week. In fact, it's all one Greek sentence. But today he's focusing on what's called the indicative. Uh, That's the mood that he's writing in, and it's talking about the certainty or the, uh, the, the actuality of what has been accomplished by God. So we're going to see today what God has done and what God is doing himself And then next week, we're going to look at the imperative, which means our response to the work of God. And so next week, we'll look uh, at how we are to live kind of this Christian life. But we're going to look at the provisions that we have in Christ today. And there's kind of three provisions specifically that we're going to look at. And the first one is found in verse 1, and it's the righteousness of Christ. Look with me there in verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, first and foremost, we see that it's Peter who's writing this letter uh, yet again. We just finished a letter that he wrote, and he's writing this one also. But look how he addresses himself. He addresses himself as Simeon. That is his Hebrew name. And then he uh, mentions his name Peter, Petros, rock, which is the name that Christ gave him, or rock-like. We know that Peter knew Christ intimately. His life intersected with Christ and was profoundly shaped by him. Uh, First being a fisherman in the Galilee region, he was called by Christ to be a disciple, then commissioned by Christ as an apostle. Uh, We all relate to Peter, do we not? Because he's kind of a hothead and he speaks what he's feeling. And we see that pop up in different aspects of the scriptures. But he is a man who is a recipient of the grace of Christ. And he was restored by Christ. Even after denying Christ three times, the Christ met him on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and restored Peter, forgiving him and loving him and commissioning him to be a pastor. We see that Peter was one who saw Christ in all of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, which he's going to talk about in this letter. He's also one who responded by cutting off the high priest's servant's ear when Jesus was being arrested. He is up and down in his life, but by the time he's writing this letter, we find a mature, stable, steadfast, sturdy Peter who is living a life that is uh, complementary of his name, Rock. This letter is probably written around the same time of the first letter, which is in the mid to late 60s, uh, while he's imprisoned in Rome. And uh, there's two clues from the scripture uh, that suggest this. One in verse 14, 
It says, uh, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear. So he's in prison, probably in a prison called Mamertine in Rome, awaiting to be killed under uh, the direction of Nero, as church history states. Uh, he was crucified upside down in Rome. And so he knows that his time is coming to an end. And if you remember back in John 21, Jesus said that he was going to be led to a place that he did not want to go, referring to the way that he was going to die, bearing the name of Christ. We also see another clue in this letter, and that's in the beginning uh, verse of chapter 3. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And so this gives us an idea that he is writing to the same group of people uh, that he once did. And so he's probably writing this from prison, and this is a farewell sermon of sorts, kind of a last will and testament. What Peter wants the church to remember, to be tethered to, is Christ while they are being infiltrated or tempted with false teaching. Notice the titles that he gives himself. He says that he is a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That little term servant there is not uh, the term servant, which means diakonos or a deacon, one who serves, but it's doulos, one who is a slave. He is a slave of Christ. That is his first description of himself. And then he reminds the church that he is also an apostle of Christ, which carries with it a rank, uh, some authority. If you remember back in Acts chapter 2, the church was to, to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. And beloved, our responsibility today is also to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Nothing has changed in that regard. This letter is going to show us that it's through the apostles, through those tapped on the shoulder uh, by God who are going to write the scriptures as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Peter is one of those men. So though he is a slave of Christ, he is also an apostle carrying, carrying with him uh, the very commission of Christ and that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus that he gives to the church. Now, uh, look with me at the recipients there in verse 1. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, the letter doesn't specifically say that it's the same group of people that he wrote to in the first letter. But that clue in chapter 3 leads most scholars to believe that it is the same group. There are some differences between the letters. Uh, this doesn't have near as much Old Testament imagery in it as the first uh, letter did. Um, but uh, it, it sort of kind of has more of a Gentile feeling to it. But we know that there was probably both Jews and Gentiles who were a part of those churches in modern day Turkey. But I, I want us to see something. No matter the recipients of the letter, look what it says there. They have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Well, how does one obtain faith? Uh, another way to ask that, how does one become a Christian? Well, obtaining a faith of equal standing uh, to ours, that ours, that plural there, is the apostles. So these, these, these people, these Gentiles, these Jews who were receiving this letter had an equal faith that the apostles had. Now, how do you obtain a faith? I think that's an important question from the text. 
Well, it's not done through any effort of our own or as a result of your exertion of wanting to be faithful, but rather obtaining means to receive something. Uh, to, to receive something that you're given, one commentator says, it's like receiving a ripe piece of fruit that just falls into your lap. So they have obtained the faith. You're simply given the faith. And Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 2, if you remember. Faith is given to you, and it's not a work that you do, but it's a gift from God so that no one would boast so he's not suggesting that this faith obtained is our, our feeble faith that holds us up. But rather, God gives faith, and in giving us faith, he holds us up, which is important for us to distinguish. Now, he says it's a faith of equal standing, and I, I want us to think about that. Peter, James, and John, uh, though they were great apostles... They stand before God just as you and I do, just as a child who has placed his or her faith in Christ for the very first time. Our roles might be different. The rewards we receive at the end of time might be different, but our standing before God is the same. So from the giants of the faith to the children of the faith, we stand as equals before a living God. And the natural question to ask in our hearts and from the text is, how is this possible? Well, look what the scriptures say. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see that little one word, righteousness, there? That is how equal standing is given. So if you're a... a love to study theology or a theologian, or if you've just studied the Bible for a long time, perhaps you've been acquainted with the doctrine of imputed righteousness. It starts with first knowing in Romans 5 that uh, the sin of Adam has been imputed to everyone, Romans 5. I, I'd encourage you to go read that today. So man is removed, if you remember, from the presence of God from the garden because of sin. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So in order to stand before God, we need to be righteous. But we need a righteousness of another, a righteousness that we do not have on our own. Because one soul, not a single soul in all of creation, can step even a toe into the kingdom of God based on their own merit or their own righteousness. In fact, Paul says that our righteousness is but filthy rags before the righteousness of God. And so what do we do? We have to look to the righteousness that comes. How? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so at the center of the good news, it's the good news that God provides his people righteousness of Christ. That means God makes us in right standing before him by giving us, imputing to us, the righteousness of Christ. Now, according to the Old Testament law, righteous in God's sight is the fulfillment of the law. And no one can fulfill the law. And that's why when Christ came and he said, I did not come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill the law. 
is such an important thing for us because he alone, as the spotless lamb, is righteous. And that means we have to admit before God first that when we stand before him and if Christ's righteousness is not imputed to him, then we stand on our own merits and we do not stand long. And so we must need Christ. We depend upon Christ. And we, we depend, as it says in Romans 5.19, on Christ obeying and fulfilling the law. That is how righteousness came about. Romans 5.19, by the one man's obedience, the many, the church, will be made righteous. So we have a high priest in heaven who is praying for us. He's praying for us right now, and he is standing before the Holy Father in all of his righteousness, as it says in Hebrews chapter 7, interceding for his church, displaying righteousness before God. That's why when we look to 2 Corinthians 5, it says that the sinners, us, the filthy, became righteous, and that the Savior became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. But we've obtained this faith, so what role does faith play in the church? Well, consider this. It is the instrument with which we embrace the righteousness of Christ. So, beloved, that means this faith that we've obtained is not what makes you righteous. Christ is what makes you righteous. Having a faith that God has given to you and you placing it in Christ who is righteous makes you righteous because God the Father then imputes the righteousness of Christ onto you. And beloved, this is so important to the doctrines that we believe in because you cannot stand before a holy God without Christ standing before you. You will not be accepted. Way to apply this to your heart. If this is true, from Peter to uh, the, 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 the youngest child, let's not be arrogant then with this salvation that we have been given by this righteousness that has been made possible through Jesus. Uh, we should not be divisive with one another. We should not be condescending uh, to one another, but we should be trusting together in the righteousness of Christ because we have received it and therefore we are in equal standing now before God just as we were in equal standing before him as unrighteous people without Christ. So apply the righteousness of Christ to your heart today and be made humble by it, knowing that even Peter stands on the same righteousness. The second provision of Christ that we see is knowledge, knowledge that is provided only through Christ. And we see this here in verses 2 and 3. Now this knowledge that we're about to get into truly begins to unlock all the blessings that we have in Jesus. So those of us who have salvation, those of us who have been set apart and made a new people, we now have these blessings according to the knowledge that is given to us in Christ. Look with me there in verse 2. Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our, uh, and of our Jesus, our Lord. Now, you see where it says there, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's not like a cheap greeting that Peter is saying. He's not just exchanging pleasantries there. That's meaningful Christian doctrine. Uh, when he's using the word grace and peace uh, be multiplied to you, grace is when God treats us sinful people 
with such generous love that we do not deserve. That's grace. Peace is provided us knowing that the wrath of God is appeased in the body of the Son as he was crucified to us. So therefore, there is no longer war between us and God. But peace has been made by the blood of his cross, as Paul writes in Colossians. So grace and peace, and look what he says, be multiplied to you. Well, how is grace and peace multiplied? Well, beloved, it's multiplied in one place. Look what he says here. It's multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Now, ultimately, we can sum that up to just a knowledge of Christ because we see in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 says that Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the manifestation of the knowledge of God. So there is one place that knowledge is found in all the world, and it's in Jesus. And so this word for knowledge here is is really important because it's different than the word knowledge that we're going to look at next week that we'll see in verses 5 and 6. That, that word is gnosko, and that's like an intellectual knowledge, like a, a fact-gathering knowledge where you know something about someone. But the way the word is used in verses 2 and 3 is epigonosko. That's the Greek word that's behind it. And that is an intimate knowledge, a, a relational knowledge, the way that a husband and a wife know each other, uh, the, way, the way that a good friend, like good friends know each other, how they're going to act and how they're going to behave and taking their questions to one another and encouraging one another. That's the way that he's using the word knowledge here. Essentially, it's the difference between knowing about Christ and knowing Christ, knowing God. Now look how Peter has referred to Christ in the first two verses uh, alone. He's talking about the genuine Christ. And, and he wants uh, to apply these truths to the learner's hearts. And, and I pray that they would be applied to ours as well. Look what he first says. He says, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now there's no definite article there. Uh, to, to separate God and Savior. He's saying Jesus is God and Savior. Uh, that's what it's saying here in the Greek. And so he's explicitly saying in the text that Jesus is God. Now, he's not all there is to God because we know that there's the triune God. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's three persons in one God. But Jesus is fully God. And so, though he was a carpenter in the Galilee uh, who helped Peter fish from time to time, the same authority that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai regarding the law is the same authority that that fisherman had. And that is a core doctrine of what we believe. It's primary to believing the right gospel. Jesus is also Savior. Uh, Jesus is the savior of our past sins, as we're going to talk about next week. He's cleansed us from our sins, but he's also going to be able to deliver us from the corruption that's in this world. That's in verse 4. We'll get to that in just a second. And as chapter 3 will tell us, he, he's also the, the refuge and the hiding place for when he returns. 
He is our righteousness, and he is coming again, and we will be fully saved at that point. We're living in the already not yet. We're fully saved in Christ, and he is going to make all things new when he comes back. He also refers to Jesus here as the Christ. Uh, Christos in, in the Greek is the rendering of the Hebrew word Messiah, the one who fulfills all of God's plans, all of God's promises, the one who makes a way of atonement for his people and delivers his people. He is the promised deliverer. And then he refers to him as Lord, the word kurios, which is the Greek's translation of the Hebrew word for Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God who's always with the people of God. So when a Jewish man uses the word Lord, he is saying this is the same one who has always kept his covenant with the people of God. Beloved, I, I want us to consider Christ. Do you know this Christ who is God, who is Savior, who is Christ, and who is your Lord? He demands all of our time and affection. He, he drives all of our motivation. And when Peter says that Jesus is God, Savior, Christ, and Lord, he means that all other claimants are false including anything that these false teachers are going to bring up or, 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 or Caesar himself or science today. Anybody that says anything different about Christ is a false teacher with a false doctrine. So, beloved, do you know about Christ or do you know Christ? Because until you know Christ, you will search for grace and peace, but you will not find it. But when you find it and you find Christ and you begin to, to walk in fellowship with him, you will see that he is the peace that fills the giant hole that is in your heart. Now, this point Peter makes a little bit more clearly even in verse 3. But before we get into verse 3, I want us to kind of set us up by recognizing these two resources that Jesus gives those in his church for us to, to know the grace and peace that he provides, found in the knowledge of him, and this is how it's multiplied. He provides his power, and he provides his promises. Let's first look at power, verse 3. It's his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The power of Christ is provided or provides all that we need in life for godliness. This is quite astonishing. That through Jesus, we have been granted, as it says, gifted these graces for all things that pertain to life and godliness. So Christ's power is this package that God provides everyone whom he saves. And there's nothing that's missing in the package for us to have a life of godliness, as it were. Sometimes I go to my garage, and I'm looking for a tool, and that tool is not where it's supposed to be. And I'm not going to point fingers or, or anything like that explicitly, but her name is not Abby Ruth. <laughs> and oftentimes I can't find the tool that, needs me, that leads me to get the job done that I need to get done, but I want us to see here Christ 
is provided, his power is provided, and there is no tool for us that's missing for anything in life and godliness. Not a single thing. That means you can walk through any circumstance in your life. Any trial or affliction that you're going through, any burden that is weighing you down, any temptation that sneaks around the corner that you're not expecting, anything that overwhelms you throughout the course of the day, and the power of Christ is given to you, church, and it's all you need for life and for godliness because you are cleansed, made righteous by his blood. What a gift that we have been given. And the natural question, again, these propositions are are just everywhere in the text. But how is this possible? Well, look what he says. That proposition, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That means we interact with this power through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Power flows through having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus himself. Now, again, knowledge isn't merely facts about him. Though we certainly want to get the facts right. We we want to make sure we're preaching the right Christ. We want to make sure we have the facts right about the gospel. But this is referring to our communion with him. When we are near Christ, we are growing in knowledge of him. We're growing in godliness. We're putting on his very heart when we are tethered to Christ. We've decided that there's no other way to live than by living with Christ on the mind. You know, think about, you can apply this to anything in life. Take medical doctors for an example. If, do you want a medical doctor who just knows about stuff? Or one who is devoted to knowing everything that he or she is responsible for, growing in a skill set, depending on old knowledge and growing uh, constantly in the new developments, essentially completely devoted to their craft. That's the life of the Christian. That's what it looks like to have knowledge of Christ, to be so tethered to him, uh, so, so, so wedded to him, that we live life this way. And and notice what it says, you are called to Christ's glory and his excellence. So through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, this is an invitation for all to know him, to know that he wants to be known by you and and that he doesn't just save us, but he calls us to his glory and, and to the excellent way in which he lives. And so apply this a couple ways to your heart, beloved. Aim The sole aim of your life is to know God, to be tethered to Christ. We say we love him so much, but are you a student of your lover? Are you a student of the church's husband? Are you preparing your heart for the wedding day? Be convinced that you should learn his heart. Be convinced that you should live a life that's trusting in his promises and uh, live a life that delights in being obedient to the commands that he gives uh, the church and living a life that adores him for who he is and living a life that's trusting in his work that is already complete. 
Is your aim in life to know God, to know Christ as he is desired to be, to be known? And that leads to our second application. Beloved, we need to be on guard not to grow indifferent to Christ, to not, to not grow uh, tired of him. When Christ begins to drift from our theology and he moves away from being the center uh, of the reason we live, then we begin to drift morally. And we begin to make excuses and create new doctrines and we begin to justify our behaviors if Christ is not center. So be on guard as well, church. But also in knowledge, he promises uh, us things. Look with me in verse 4a. Look at this other preposition by which he has granted to us his very precious and great promises. Now that preposition by which is plural is probably linking back to glory and excellence because he is glorious and excellent. This is how he has given us these promises to treasure. But look what he has granted us. His precious and very great promises have been given to you, church, have been granted to you, church. You have received these in Christ. Yes, we've received promises like uh, the one who was gonna crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. One has come and crushed the head of the serpent. We have promises like Abraham that he's gonna be the father of many nations. That this gospel's gonna go forward and it's gonna gather the people together. We're gonna, we have promises that there's a greater king than David that's gonna sit on the throne. This is 2 Samuel chapter seven. We have promises that Jesus has already fulfilled like the forgiveness of of our sins. We have promises in the Old Testament like uh, he's going to remove a heart of stone and he's gonna give us a heart of flesh because the Holy Spirit is going to indwell us. But we also have promises that are still waiting to be fulfilled like the promise of Christ returning and more than likely that is in view here uh, as he says these promises of Christ because in chapter three he is reminding the church to remember that Jesus is coming back. So more than likely, he's wanting them to remember that Christ is coming. And we will see the glorious one. And what we see by faith now is, is going to be seen by sight. And there's going to be a righteousness that, that indwells all of creation at that point. And there's not going to be any death or pain, discomfort, Anything to drive you away from these promises. He's going to wipe all your tears away. And so hold to these promises. You, you know what it's like when you go on vacation or you've got like a vacation that's distant in the future and you're like waiting for it, these great promise that's coming. You can't wait for your family time and then it gets here and you're having a blast and then it's day three of a five-day trip and you start thinking, man, this is almost over. And so the last two days are totally spoiled, and your wife asks you what's going on. Just kidding. And, but it's because these promises are not truly able to fulfill. But the promises of Christ will be fulfilled because they're eternal promises. And so the way that the church uh, fights and believes in the faith is through these promises, and, th and that's what 
He says here for our third and final point, the purposes of these promises help us live life now. Look with me there in 4B. This is the third provision of Christ, which fulfills the purposes of God in Christ. We are to be partakers of godliness so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So believing in these promises, we, church, through them become partakers. That word partakers is is the word koinonia. It's fellowship. We're, We're in fellowship with the divine nature. You, you are walking in godliness. You're tethered to godliness. Here's the reality. If we believe in the promises of Christ, the reality is you become something different. Your very nature changes. Uh, your very heart begins to shift. You are now desiring to be in fellowship with godliness You're a partaker, as it says here, in the divine glory because God gives you a new appetite. You hunger and you thirst for righteousness. Now, Peter is not suggesting that we are divine in this life. There's a difference between having a divine nature and participating in a divine nature. And that is a really important doctrine for us to believe because some have suggested that we no longer sin if we are participating in the divine nature, and that is simply not true. In fact, it doesn't even fit the context, not only of the whole scripture, but even of the passage as Peter is stirring us up to godliness, as we'll see in the next two sermons. But I want us to see kind of an example of of what we're talking about. In theology, we have the incommunicable attributes of God, And we have the communicable attributes of God. The incommunicable attributes of God are this. God is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's self-existing. He creates out of nothing. He doesn't share those attributes with us. We cannot partake in those things. But the communicable attributes of God, he does share with us. Those attributes like love, goodness, Kindness, truth, wisdom. And this is a call that when you have obtained the faith and you have uh, uh, been made right before God and he has given to you power through the knowledge of Christ and in this hope-filled knowledge, he has called us to his glory and his excellence uh, by which he has given us these promises so that we would partake in his divine nature, growing in love, hospitality, care for one another, kindness to one another. This is the Christian life. It's to be saved, but it's to be saved for something. So this is the indicative work of God. He is doing something. He has saved us in Christ. He continues to give us Christ and the knowledge of him so that we would have hope, so that we have understanding, so that we would be partakers of his divine nature. We do not have a divine nature, but it's through our union with Christ and these promises that have been given to us, this salvation that has been granted to us, that we can begin to look what it says, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world. He's not saying that we're not going to sin. 
He's just saying that when God does this work in salvation, he is doing a whole, full, complete work. And remember what it says in Hebrews 2.4, that Christ's death breaks the power of sin for his church. So Christ delivers us from the payment of sin, and he then delivers us from the power of sin that so easily entangles. And this is what Peter finds necessary to remind the church of so that they would stand firm in the faith as his final will and testament to them. Beloved, I don't know when we're going to pass. I don't know when I'm going to pass. But Peter's last will and testament is an important note for each of us in the church today. So this beautiful gospel, in Christ we have this right standing before God. He's given us a faith. Remember, it's like a piece of fruit that just fell in our lap. And we have this righteousness as we stand before him and we're given knowledge of him and we're given his power, which is in this knowledge. He's given us these promises so that we can be partakers of his divine nature, escaping from sins that so easily entangle us. And we come together as the church to remind us of these truths. We preach these things over and over again because you will forget them by tomorrow. That's why we have to be tethered to Christ. We are so easily able to drift away. These are the privileges that we have as the beloved of Christ himself. I have one question for you in response today. Is Christ everything to you? Is he everything to you. Let's pray that God would make it so for all of us. Father, thank you that you have given us everything. Everything in Christ for life and godliness. Help us to remember that Christ alone makes us righteous. Father, help us to remember God, that the knowledge of Christ is where power for this life is found, holding to the promises. Father, holding to the promises and being tethered to Christ keeps us from sin in this life, as this book will teach us. God, help us as we preach through it, as we listen through it, as we apply it to our lives. In Christ we pray, amen.